The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... From entrepreneurship to global business leadership, from challenges to self-discovery to our ever-changing future, what separates those who win and those who get passed by? This is The Yes Factor with Winnie Sun. I think you'll agree that the COVID-19 pandemic that we started following in early 2020 has changed the world. The days of simply jumping on a plane, meeting with your team for lunch, now involves taking pause and stock of risk. But for vaccine experts like Dr. Peter Hotez, these vaccines have been on his radar for decades. Having studied tropical disease control and global health for years, this gave Dr. Hotez yet another opportunity to do what he does best in his quest to protect the world. Now, I've been following Dr. Hotez throughout this pandemic on social media, where, you know, he's been called a national treasure by many to, let's just say, the absolute worst opposite. Yet, as we know, success never comes easy. Years of medical school, scientific study, and practicing medicine, and studying and developing vaccines couldn't prepare him for the rage he received from so many who doubted his intentions. With an autistic child, he knew families were concerned about vaccines. After all, he thought so as well. He was concerned. He's a parent. But he never thought he'd have people threatening his life because he created a vaccine and shared it freely out to the world to combat today's pandemic. How does he do it? Why does he do it? And what should we expect next from this pandemic? Please join me today as I share with you his story. Meet Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Dr. Peter Hotez. Thank you so much, doctor, for being here. How are you today? I'm good. It's good to see you, Winnie, and uh, look forward to our chat today. Well, I appreciate your time. I know everyone is very excited to hear from you, and we're honored to have you here today. I'd like to start with this, if you don't mind, Dr. Hotez, is to talk about your backstory, where you were, how you got here, because I think we'd like to learn about you know your journey to this point. Well, I'm from uh, the Northeast, from born in Hartford, Connecticut, and grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, and had a lifelong ambition, actually, to study parasitic and tropical diseases. So I did my MD and PhD in New York at Rockefeller University and Weill Cornell Medical College. And that's been my, what I've been focusing on ever since, developing vaccines for poverty-related diseases using science for humanitarian pursuits. And we have new vaccines for schistosomiasis, a disease of 140 million people, mostly in, in the African continent, and hookworm infection, and a new Chagas disease vaccine. The coronavirus program is actually more recent. That's over the last 10 years. Uh, we started developing vaccines for SARS and MERS because they were orphaned as well. Remember the original SARS that came out of uh, Southern China in 2002 and spread into Toronto. And that's how we showed the spike protein as a target of the virus, how to deliver the spike protein, all that fed into the COVID-19 program. And now we are our center, which is called the Texas Children's Hospital, 
Center for Vaccine Development that's co-headed by myself and my science partner now for the last 20 years, Mary Elena Batazzi, has uh, developed a low-cost COVID-19 vaccine for the world that uses, it's a vegan vaccine that uses a yeast fermentation similar to what's used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. And the reason why that's relevant is because that technology for making hepatitis B vaccine is in place in India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Vietnam, uh, China, of course, Brazil, uh, and multiple other other countries so that if you want to make a COVID vaccine for the world, this one you could plug and play pretty easily. And, and now this one has been, when we've licensed it to four developing country vaccine manufacturers, they actually call themselves that, developing country vaccine manufacturers network, we've licensed it to, with no patents, no strings attached, to Biological E in India, to Biopharma in Indonesia, and SEPTA in Bangladesh, and Immunity Bio, which is building infrastructure. In Botswana, India is the furthest along. They're producing a billion doses. So that's really excited. It's been released through emergency use authorization in adults and now teenagers, uh, 12 and up and soon kids and, and trying to build infrastructure along the way. So we're working furiously to close that vaccine equity gap because that's the reason why we're seeing all these terrible variants emerge like Delta out of India uh, last year and Omicron out of Southern Africa, until we vaccinate the whole world, we'll continue to be buffeted by these variants. And so aside from the obvious humanitarian need for these vaccines is the fact that it's in our own enlightened self-interest here in the United States. That's the Cliff Notes version. That's the Cliff Notes version. I'll take it. Well, you know, I, it's interesting that you've been saying, you said, well, we've been working on this COVID vaccine. It's relatively new. And you said we've been working on it for the last 10 years. I think many people who are not in your field thinking, well, wow, that actually been studying this quite a lot longer than it was on our radar. So let's talk about this a little bit. Obviously, you know, it's a highly controversial topic, but you've been such a vocal person about, you're already so busy working on helping people um, all over the world. How do you have time to then share this with the public and why is this important to you? Well, you know, for the last 20 years, I've always had a tried to maintain a foot firmly planted in public engagement. And that's the hard part of my life is being a working scientist and keeping up with what working scientists do and keeping up with the grants and the papers and and keeping up with the scientific literature and in the lab meetings and all of that sort of thing, but also trying to really address public concerns about science, and most recently to combat a pretty aggressive anti-vaccine movement. So I have four adult kids, including Rachel, who has autism and intellectual disabilities. And a few years back, I wrote a book with the straightforward title, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, because that was the original assertion from the anti-vaccine lobby. And the book, you know, is is an important book because it not only tells about having a daughter with, with autism and intellectual disabilities, but also what uh, autism is and how it begins in early fetal brain development through the action of autism genes and why it's not related to vaccines and the evidence is not related to vaccines. And because that was the original assertion of the anti-vaccine lobby. They made the false claim that vaccines cause autism. I went up against it in a big way and it paid the price in the sense that I became a public enemy number one or two from the anti-vaccine groups. In fact, they caught my nickname, according to one of their Instagram sites, is the OG villain, the original
original gangster villain for doing that. So Winnie, you've had having the original gangster villain on today. And it hasn't stopped. I mean, in this time of COVID, the anti-vaccine lobby has grown in size and organization. They have political action committees. They have a lot of political money. When they do something like that, it's followed by a wave of very, a wave of aggression, a wave of threats. And as I, as I sometimes say, it's it's a tough time to be a scientist in America. It's a tough time to be a scientist indeed. You know, I applaud you for doing what you do. I know it's not easy to do. I think, you know, as a parent of young children, I think sometimes we feel like we want to be in control and, and have the knowledge and feel comfortable, right? This is something that we're all living through for the first time. Oftentimes as parents, we're thinking, you know, is vaccination the right thing to do? I, I've thought that as a parent. I know many people still feel this way. They, a lot of this was rushed. So so thank you for speaking out on that. I think that uncertainty certainly is something that we can relate to. There's a lot of fear and concern of things you, do, you don't understand. With your help, that science will get more comfortable with this. So well, let, me, let me just say to that point, Winnie, I mean, I think, you know, this has become more than an academic discussion because uh, since the summer, since last summer, uh, 200,000 unvaccinated Americans have lost their lives to COVID despite the widespread availability of vaccines since last May. So 200,000 people have, in a sense, thrown their lives away because of whatever this is, allegiance to the anti-vaccine lobby and aggression, especially on the far right. In fact, the New York Times, David Leonhardt in the New York Times has called it red COVID because it's such an obvious partisan divide. And that's the other part that's really hard to talk about because as a physician scientist, your training says, you, you know, you're not supposed to talk about Republicans and Democrats and liberals or conservatives, but I, you know, I haven't found a way to talk about it without talking about it. And it's, and it's not that I'm politicizing vaccines. Those guys are. And, and what I'm trying to say is, the this anti-science, anti-vaccine sentiments and aggression doesn't belong. It, it, I try to uncouple the two, but it's it's been really tough. Um, it's and and it's taken on a and a lot a lot of violent language and and threats in the last uh, year. Um, and still and still going. So you went through this with your daughter with autism and the the concern about vaccines. This did this surprise you? Just how strongly this became a discussion of uh, anti-vaxxers versus those who followed science. Um, did, did any of this surprise you? I think the part that I didn't count on, I mean, in the started out, you know, as small groups, uh, you know, mom and pop groups concerned about autism and, and con or concerned about, you know, something they've read on the internet. That part I understood and, and I thought I knew how to talk to parents about that. And generally I had good success talking to parents and eventually they'd vaccinate their kids. I think the the kind of the the twist that it took starting around the 2010s though is when it became a political movement and they started forming political action committees. And there was a lot of money from the Republican Tea Party for this. And it, you know, at first it didn't make any sense. Now I'm starting to understand it. And and so that by going up against these political action committees, you were fighting something much bigger than you ever dreamed. And in response, they began not only targeting the science, but, you know, you see this on Fox News at night. Now they're targeting the scientists and portraying, you know, you prominent U.S. scientists like myself and others as enemies of the state. And you know, as I like to say, this is a nation founded on our research institutes and universities. It's what allowed us to 
helped defeat fascism in World War II and win the Cold War and, and help, help in the control of HIV AIDS. And so we are a nation of science and innovation. So to see that under threat gives me a lot of pause for concern. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Hotez. I'm going to circle back a little bit. And so do you think there is a way that we can have a more comfortable discussion about vaccines and and to be able to have these you know conversations where some of the heat can be turned down and we can finally get to a point where you talked about the importance of having global vaccination do you see this as something that um, can be changed or do you feel like I, I don't even know where to begin well, I keep trying. I think you have, you know, working on something called neglected diseases my whole life. By definition, by definition, I'm an optimist, and, and so um, you know, any chance, anytime I'm despite what they do to go after me, anytime I'm invited on Fox News, I go on, or any of the conservative news outlets, or I'll do a Breitbart interview, or or um, and always willing to talk to conservative groups. Because I think we have to do it to save lives. Again, 200,000 unvaccinated Americans losing their lives needlessly. I don't even know what you call that anymore. It's not even misinformation or disinformation. It's some form of self-immolation. And it's a killer. So I'm working on a new book now that has the working title, Anti-Science Kills, that really highlights this and tries to educate people how far the anti-vaccine, anti-science movement has become. And then the question is, what do you do about it? Part of the answer is, I'm not sure I know what to do about it anymore because it's gone way beyond the health sector when this has become a political movement. So I've recommended to the Biden administration that they look at trying to bring in some experts outside the health sector to get educated on what we can do for whether it's from Homeland Security or the Justice Department or the Commerce Department to understand what our options are to combat the aggression and to save lives. I think the other piece to this relevant to today's news is we know the Russian government and Putin's propaganda machine has been using this as a wedge issue to divide our country, to to uh, expand the gap between Republicans and Democrats. And through this very sophisticated program of what's sometimes called weaponized health communication with bots and trolls. So this means bringing in the State Department on this. So there's a there's a lot of things we need to do. Let me circle back real quick. I want to ask you, Dr. Hotez, you know, why a patent-free vaccine? Why did you decide to go this route? Well, as I like to say, you know, when your house is on fire and you can make one phone call, you don't call the patent attorney, you call the fire department. We're the fire department. And I just saw, you know, so much global vaccine inequalities in the fact that the African continent is, for all practical purposes, remains unvaccinated in much of Southeast Asia, the poorer countries of Central America and tropical regions of South America unvaccinated. We've got to fix this. And so I said, look, let's just take the patents off the table. And we'll worry about it later. Let, let's get this vaccine out to people. And, and I think it's resonated. I think people are really happy to see this. I think you're getting tired of, of all the fighting and, and worrying about intellectual property when so many lives are being lost, uh, especially in low and middle income countries. And the fact that until we fix this, we're going to continue to have this pandemic until we halt the variants of concern from emerging in, among from unvaccinated populations in low and middle income countries. The, the only tough part of this is it's very idealistic in nature. It's necessary. It's essential. But 
it means that we do depend on uh, private philanthropy for this. We really don't get any money from the U.S. government. We got a little bit, about $400,000 from the NIH uh, early in 2020. That's about it. So it's really nothing compared to the billions people are getting, uh, companies are getting, and the, nothing from the G7 countries. So we struggle. You know, fortunately, some private philanthropies in New York, like the JPB Foundation, or in Texas, some of the Texas philanthropies, like Tito's Vodka, all organizations and the Clayburg Foundation, Dunn Foundation, MD Anderson Foundation. That's one of the reasons we came to Texas because it is a good philanthropic environment, but we're still, you know, we still struggle because we still, like any other organization, we have to pay the salaries of our scientists and that's always the the tough part. So I'm, I mean, I'm amazed we've gotten as far as we have uh, with our group of 20 scientists, but I think we could go faster and quicker with additional support. And as I said, no one else seems to have this mission of vaccinating the world like we do. And we'll be right back with Dr. Peter Hotez. I'm Kwame Christian, and I am the CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. And I want you to check out my podcast, Negotiate Real Change. Listen to conversations with leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and learn the secrets behind what it really takes to become a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. Check out Negotiate Real Change on your favorite podcast player. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And so for those who are listening and who want to help, I know that this is an area where they can go and contribute. They can make donations. Where should they go to do that? Well, on my, if you're on Twitter at all, on, on, uh, pinned to the top of my Twitter handle is a donation page for our Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. That's one way. Or or you can contact me by email. It's pretty easy to find. The anti-vaxxers seem to have no trouble finding it. So I'm sure your listeners won't have much trouble finding it either. That would really help. And even, you know, small donations make a difference. Uh, and by the way, our vaccine looks like it'll be the lowest cost of all the vaccines. So simple technology made locally at, in India is being priced at 145 rupees a dose which I had to look up. That means about a dollar ninety a dose. So it's the least expensive of all the COVID vaccines. And now Indonesia's uh, producing a similar version of it. it the, and because it's vegan, it's actually, they're going to make it as a halal version for Muslim majority countries. So that's that's exciting. And now in Botswana, it's looking really promising as well in Bangladesh. But, you know, there, we're getting calls from countries all over the world. So, you know, v Vietnam, for instance, has the ability to make hepatitis B vaccine, a similar technology technology so they could make it or you know countries in in North Africa or even other countries in sub-saharan Africa or Latin America so we're, we're still we're, we still keep pushing well thank you for pushing that and I think that because you said this is like old technology so I imagine it's easier to replicate and it's probably technology more people around the world are comfortable right because it's something that's right that's right in fact you know we we've actually done something also kind of unique we it, it's open source in the sense that we've published, every step of how we make the vaccine. 
and, and you can just download the papers if you go to the PubMed National Library of Medicine search site. You can we have five papers. You don't even actually even have to talk to us to make it. Although we we make it easier for you to do that because we'll provide you know the starter kit or the production cell bank and we'll help in the assay development and, and help you in the technology transfer at our own expense. Again, we just decided we're going to make this as easy breezy as we possibly do this. Well, let me ask you this. You know, COVID appears to be more managed right now, right? We're hearing good numbers even this this week. Um, of course, it's still here, but it seems like there's a bit of optimism across the country. What do you see next? Anything we should start to be prepared for? That's a great question. So you're right. The numbers are coming down, especially in places like Maryland or Eastern Maryland, where it's now getting down below 10 new cases per 100,000, which is good news. New York and New Jersey, it's coming down. And so what I've been saying that this will allow some type of national reset to us to really take a hard look at where we're heading with this pandemic. And, and a few thoughts on that. I think the hard part is going to be getting ready for another wave because I don't think we're done. And so trying to get the American people to understand that even though this is finally looking really good, it's not final. I'm anticipating another wave across the southern part of the United States and Texas, just like we saw in 2020 and 2021. How do you get the American people ready for that? Should we create some kind of color coding coded alert system. The governor of California just announced some new measures now. He's not calling it a reset, but he's saying getting ready for the endemic phase. I'm not sure I'm thrilled with that word. It's not quite right, but but I understand what he means. And so I think the governor of California sort of the tip of the spear and trying to get the people of California ready for the next step. I think we could be in for regular winter waves. So that's going to be the hard part is, is making people understand that we're still in for not sort of a long-term low level of infection, as some are saying, but, but it'll appear in waves just like it has the last two years. And so getting ready for that next wave. And by the way, we could still have another bump through the BA2 variant, although it's looking like so far it's not happening. It's not impossible. So that's something else to consider as well. But I think the time points that I'm worried about are over the summer in the Southern states, just like we've had in the last two years, and then another a peak in the winter. And maybe that'll go on for a few years, winter peak. So one of my colleagues, Mark Lipsitch, who's a professor at Harvard School of Public Health, early on in the pandemic, I think he was, I think he was right, you know, that, that we could see these winter peaks and maybe Omicron was the first example of that. And I think that's a possibility as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, went to visit Taiwan actually right before big pandemic hit here in the United States. And I remember even going on the subway system and, you know, seeing people already mask up and knowing that, well, if you're maybe not feeling so good or things aren't feeling as safe, then go ahead and mask up. Do you think that that's a smart strategy for us as parents? We have children going to school. Is that going to be sort of a long-term strategy? Like I know there's a lot of talk of whether or not masks should be still maintained at school. I'm here in California, you know, so I think a lot of parents are still feeling a lot of anxiety of what we should do. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done a lot of work in China and, and Asia over the years. And, and, you know, when you, you go, especially in the winter, you see that the mask culture is, uh, is, is for real people. A lot of people do wear masks, you know, pre pandemic. And so it's, it's better accepted. I, you know, it, it's never a bad idea, right? I mean, we know now the benefits of, of wearing a mask are that it also helps other prevent other respiratory infections. I think it's a reason why we've had such mild influenza seasons the last two years. So certainly 
nothing wrong with that. But I think, you know, and it depends where you are geographically. So here where I am in Texas, you know, right now you go into the stores and, you know, pretty restaurants, pretty much nobody has a mask on, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, it's just not part of the, it's just not reinforced by our, many of our elected leaders. So I think that's always going to be tough trying to convince people to re-implement masks or, or mask mandates if we do have those new waves. Well, thank you. Well, and lastly, I know we need to let you go, but I just want to say congratulations on the recent Nobel Peace Prize nomination. Just before you go, tell us, how did it feel to be recognized with this nomination? You know, I, I was I was pleasantly shocked. And you know, I felt this kind of wave of relief, uh, not relief, not quite, but an elation, not quite right either. It was this a feeling of validation because, you know, I've been so aggressively attacked over the last 20 years, but it's accelerated so much in the last two years. So I guess the word I would use is this feeling of validation that, that what I've been doing is valued by the world in terms of making vaccines for the world's poor and making this low-cost COVID vaccines and fighting the anti-science uh, aggression. So there was a lot of emotional release. I was in, I was a bit in tears actually when I, when I learned about it. I you know I have no idea what the likelihood is I'd ever get something like that, but just the recognition of that some a group would think enough of me to to nominate me. In this case, Congress I think it was Congresswoman Lizzie Fletcher from Texas, who's, who's an amazing person. Just a really special moment for me and for my family. How do your kids feel? They must have thought that was pretty cool. Well, you know how adult kids are, uh, or maybe you don't know, but uh, you know they're too cool for school, as they say. But they were, they were, they were great. They were very supportive, and and even my special, even my special needs daughter who has a lot of intellectual disabilities. Understood it and gave me a hug. That was really nice. And I and I told her, "Well, Rach, you helped me get her name is Rachel. I call her Rach." You helped me get there, Rachel. Well, we are so proud of you. I'm very excited for you. And so congratulations for your achievement. And thank you for all that you're doing for not just here in the United States, but across the globe. Thank you, Winnie. All the best. I hope you enjoyed this interview. No doubt, it's a crazy time. But I hope this knowledge brightens your day and gives you better clarity for the days ahead. There is much to learn from new perspectives. And I hope Dr. Hotez sparked an idea or inspiration for you. The interview certainly reaffirms my appreciation for doctors and nurses and medical and scientific communities who continue to work on the front lines. Join me again next week as we share another new episode of Yes Factor with you. Please subscribe and share this show with a friend. Thank you and be well. Be well.